Hello, and welcome to episode zero of the Venture Games podcast. I'm Chris Quaidu, and my podcast will primarily focus on venture capital and the gaming industry, with other topics added in along the way. In most episodes, I'll have on one or more guests that I've been lucky enough to meet and connect with. Most of my guests will be professionals in VC or the gaming industry. My hope is that my guests will help provide interesting and diverse perspectives, advice, and good conversations. But this first episode will be different and won't feature any guests. There are more than 1 million individual podcasts today. And in this episode, I hope to explain why mine will provide a unique perspective and will be worth listening to. To start off with some background on myself, I started my venture career as an associate at Story Ventures a seed stage venture capital firm based in New York City. Shortly after, I joined Griffin Gaming Partners, a Santa Monica-based venture capital firm, which is the largest gaming industry-focused venture fund in the world. I'm also an investment partner for Dorm Room Fund and an MBA candidate at Berkeley Haas. Before starting my MBA program, I spent five years working in investment management primarily covering the technology sector. Finally, so I don't get in trouble, everything I say in this podcast is my opinion alone and doesn't reflect the opinions of any employers. So there are plenty of venture podcasts and you might ask why mine is any different. For one, I believe I have a differentiated background compared to most people in the industry. The U.S. population is approximately 13% Black today. While estimates vary, most estimates suggest that only 2 to 4% of VC investors are Black. Further, my parents are from Ghana and Jamaica, and I grew up in Rochester, New York. My guess is that in the history of the venture capital industry, there has not been another first-generation African-American from Rochester, New York, to work in the industry. But if I'm wrong, I would love an introduction to this person. The VC industry is 70% white and 80% male. Further, it's been estimated that 40% of VC investors come from just two schools, Harvard and Stanford. This problem is even more pronounced amongst Black investors. More than 50% of Black investors in VC went to either Harvard or Stanford, underscoring how high the bar is for the industry in general, and how it's even more difficult to enter the industry as an African-American. If you're lucky, you might get a chance to work in the industry if you went to one of the two best schools in the country, and some would argue in the world. Again, I would guess none of these venture investors from Stanford or Harvard is a Ghanaian Jamaican from Rochester, New York. A quick look at my LinkedIn profile will show you that I never went to Harvard or Stanford. In fact, I have never attended any Ivy League school. I briefly attended Penn State University before dropping out and then enrolling at the University of Rochester shortly after, where I studied economics and computer science. While in school at the University of Rochester, I became increasingly interested in investing. 
I started absorbing as much information on investing that I could get my hands on, reading books like The Intelligent Investor and A Random Walk Down Wall Street. After saving up a small amount of money from some part-time jobs I held, like selling life insurance and delivering mail on campus, I started my own personal investment account with little success. Despite the slow start, I've always liked the fact that investing in stocks is a game of imperfect information with betting in a scoreboard in which nearly anyone can enter as long as they have the money. In investing, like poker, which is another game I enjoy that I'll discuss more in a later episode, results can vary dramatically in the short term. But in the long term, in both investing and poker, the best players win much more than they lose. This phenomenon is exactly what makes both of these games so exciting, frustrating, and enticing. Anyone can win in any one poker game or on any one investment, but only the truly great poker players and investors win throughout their careers. I believe the game of poker is one of the best analogs for investing, and there have been a bunch of books and articles written by successful investors comparing the two. As I continued to get more and more interested in investing, I took the natural next step for a college student with no connections in finance. And so I went to my school's career center to learn more about how to break into this field that I was so excited to learn more about. After sharing my goals with a career center advisor, I was given the disclaimer that finance is a white man's world. Well, I don't think this was an attempt to discourage me from trying to enter the industry. I do think it was a preemptive warning that I would probably fail if I tried to break into the industry and maybe working in finance just wasn't for me. Now, there are many reasons for the diversity stats I listed above within the VC industry. And the diversity issues are also apparent in the finance industry as a whole. My guess is an advisor telling you that you don't belong when you ask for advice on how to break into the industry is one of the many reasons leading to this statistic. For every stubborn person like me who had no chance to enter the industry but tried anyway, I imagine there are many more who unfortunately listened to this advice and tried something else. Fortunately, after a number of rejections and a tremendous amount of luck, I was given a chance to enter the investment management industry. Like poker and investing, I believe career progression in highly selective industries like finance is driven significantly by luck in the short term. There are very few jobs and if you aren't well-connected and don't have a traditional background, it's extremely difficult to get one of these jobs. Only in the long term can you determine whether you're actually good, and I don't think I've reached the long term yet. By even more luck, I was able to cover and invest in the technology sector, including the gaming industry, autonomous driving, large internet companies like Facebook and Google, smartphone companies like Apple, semiconductor companies, and SaaS software companies, among others. These companies were mostly headquartered in the US, but I've also covered companies in other countries like China, Japan, 
South Korea, and Israel. I've been a huge tech nerd since I was a young child, and investing in tech stocks for five years was an incredible experience. As I became more and more immersed in tech investing, I started to learn more about this industry called venture capital. Similar to my initial experience breaking into finance, as I became more interested in the idea of working in venture capital, I was reminded again that it would be nearly impossible for me to work in the industry. Again, I'm a first-generation African-American from Rochester, New York. My parents are from Ghana and Jamaica. It's not an exaggeration to say that when I decided I wanted to try to work in venture, as far as I know, I had literally never even met anyone who had ever worked in venture capital. Now, going back to luck. It's been said that luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. But I think this is just a cliche. I think luck is sometimes just dumb luck. I felt like I was far from prepared when I had the opportunity that allowed me to get my first job in VC. Now, I promised one of the partners at Story Ventures, the first VC firm, to give me a chance to prove myself that he can tell the story of how we met when I have him on my podcast in a later episode. So my breaking into venture story will have to wait until later, but I can promise you it's truly unique. And I would be surprised if anyone in the industry got their first venture job the same way that I did. While I was at Story, I was extremely fortunate to have been introduced to mentors and advocates who have vouched for me. While some people say venture capital is an exclusive and clubby industry, it's also true that once you do break in, as they say, it's much easier to build a network as long as you have the right set of people willing to go to bat for you. I've been lucky to meet a number of incredibly kind and talented people in the industry who believe in me, and I hope to have many of them as guests on this podcast. Now that we've talked about venture, it's time to talk about games. I have always loved games. I've loved video games since playing Crash Bandicoot on the original PlayStation and Sonic on the Sega Genesis in the mid-90s. I've loved board games since I learned to play Scrabble as a young child. I distinctly remember losing in Scrabble to my dad and grandma when she came to visit us from Ghana when I was younger. I've played more than 5,000 games of Scrabble in different mobile apps over the past 10 or so years, and after tons of practice and studying different word lists, I feel confident at this point that I can beat my dad and my grandma more than they can beat me. Sorry, grandma. Now, it's not news to most people that the gaming industry is red hot. Gaming is approximately a $170 billion industry, which is more than twice the size of the global box office and the global music industry combined. Most estimates suggest there are close to 3 billion gamers on the globe, which is more than the number of Facebook's monthly active users and more than the approximately 2.3 billion Christians in the world. Much of the growth in the industry, especially in recent years, has been driven primarily by mobile. The growth of mobile gaming has largely been driven by the proliferation of smartphones, improved internet speeds, 
improved hardware, and by some wildly successful mobile games, introducing non-traditional gamers to the world of gaming, including Candy Crush Saga, which launched in 2012. Almost a decade later, Candy Crush still sits among the top 10 highest grossing mobile apps, not just games. Mobile gaming is not a fad, and neither is Candy Crush. The Candy Crush franchise still grosses somewhere between $1 and $2 billion annually, and there's still well over 100 million Candy Crush players today. A few years later, in 2016, Pokemon Go would captivate mainstream audiences and break records for being one of the fastest and most downloaded mobile games in history. I remember coworkers comparing the new Pokemon they had captured while at work, and of course I have to admit that I would sometimes alter my commute to catch rare Pokemon. Even today, four years after its launch, Pokemon Go is one of the most successful augmented reality use cases we've seen to date. After Pokemon Go came Fortnite. In July of 2017, Fortnite was released by Epic Games. Two months later, Epic would release the Battle Royale version of the game, which is a version most people are familiar with today. Fortnite Battle Royale, which actually borrows heavily from a number of games that preceded it, but weren't nearly as successful, would go on to gross billions of dollars with hundreds of millions of registered users. Fortnite popularized many dances, created multi-millionaire celebrity gamers, and contributed to the explosion of gaming viewership as popular streamer Tyler Blevins, or Ninja, streamed the game with superstars Drake and Travis Scott. While Fortnite's popularity has peaked, its impact has largely remained. Gaming is as mainstream as ever and continues to grow faster than most other areas of the entertainment industry. But years before any of this happened, I was competing as what would be considered a top amateur, meaning I played competitively against other top amateurs and some professionals in the Halo franchise. At my peak, I played with some of the best Halo players in the world. Back when I was playing, the word esports was hardly, if ever, used. In fact, the word esports would not be added to a recognized dictionary until 2015, while Halo 2, the game that first introduced me to the world of competitive gaming, was released in 2004. For those who might discount the difficulty of becoming one of the best at a video game, Consider the fact that most seriously competitive gamers spend a minimum of 40 to 50 hours a week practicing with additional playtime outside of formal practice. When I was most serious about Halo, I would spend nearly every waking minute outside of school gaming. Many competitive gamers retire at an early age due to the intensity of the schedule. Players generally start competing by their mid to late teens, with most retiring by their late 20s. Most likely, if you're listening to this podcast, you've never heard of me as a gamer. I think that's largely because, one, I was simply too early. Most of the gamers who were peaking when I did 
just aren't around today. Though some that I've played with frequently went on to have tremendous success, including Jack Dunlop of 100 Thieves, who I used to play with daily. And two, it's hard to convince your parents to allow you to travel around the country and compete in video games as a teenager, especially a decade before anyone knew what Fortnite even was. I believe there are very few people in the venture industry, though there are definitely some, who have competed at the level that I did in the video game industry, then later went on to invest in the space. But my hope is that this will prove to be a competitive advantage as my career as an investor progresses. Some of the most well-regarded VC investors in the gaming space have deep experience as gamers, and I believe having a strong understanding of the gaming culture and landscape can help lead to better investing decisions in the space. While many of the future episodes of my podcast likely won't cover both venture and gaming in the same episode, I hope to provide insight into each of these worlds, and sometimes both, from what I hope is my unique perspective and through conversations with my guests. Finally, before you go, I wanted to recognize a few people who have helped me get to this point. First, Jake and Brian Yormack, founding partners at Story Ventures, who gave me my first venture opportunity. Next, Chris Freilich, board partner at First Round Capital, who has been an incredible mentor to me and who encouraged me to start this podcast. Justine Humanansky, investor at Playground Global, who has served as a mentor and advocate for me. Molly Fowler, CEO of Dormroom Fund, who helped introduce me to a number of VC investors through the Blueprint Investor Track. David Bloom, an investor at Signia Venture Partners and another mentor and advocate for me. And last but not least, Alex Chesson, one of my closest friends from high school who has always supported me. Thanks for listening.